Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Overrun. I'm Dan Schwester, and uh, I have a distinct pleasure of speaking to a thought leader in uh, trauma care. Um, you may have known him as the saint, the uh, namesake of the St. Fisher Church of Evidence-Based Medicine, which hopefully we'll get back into that. Uh, Andrew Fisher is a first year uh, physician, but he has had a long, long career in pre-hospital care. Dr. Fisher, uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about trauma care. So uh, can you take us through your experience? You, you've pretty much done everything from EMT to physician, from civilian to military, right? Yeah, pretty much. If you can name it, I've probably done it. Um, it's probably not the best route to go if you want to do something in medicine um, or a particular path of medicine. But yeah, it's been my route. Yeah, EMT, paramedic, PA, and now surgical intern. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting because you're starting to see a lot more people in the EMS profession move out of that into um, mid-level providers and moving into uh, becoming a physician. Uh, so uh, where did you get... you? Where did you get your start? Where where does it begin for you? Uh, 1990, 1995, uh, when I was uh, sent to an EMT course, when I was uh, infantryman in uh, First Ranger Battalion. This, we had EMTs back in the day, like one per squad or one per platoon. I can't remember the exact numbers, but yeah, it, it was basically the precursor to, I think, uh, uh, some of the other more advanced uh, programs that they have now in the military you may see around where they utilize non-medical people uh, to kind of assist and, and such with the medic. So yeah, they sent me to this course. I had no idea was what an EMT was at, the point, at that time, but it's like, wow. all right, yeah, sounds good. I'll go. Okay. It, 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 was, it was like, you know, every certain parts of the year or the training calendar were dedicated to doing these extra type of trainings, more individualized trainings. So, you know, it was me and, you know, maybe 20 other guys in the battalion that were sent to this course. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and from there, it just, it just grew. And then, uh, yeah. you, you, uh, ended up being selected to go to PA school, right? In the military when you were with the Ranger Regiment. No, no, I was, uh, I'd been out of the army for a number of years. Uh, uh okay. Yeah. So I got out in 96 uh, and then I, be, I became an EMT and then I became a paramedic in the civilian world. Um, and, and, you know, shout out to my, to my whiz brothers and sisters out there. Who, who, uh, who, you know, I ended up working 911 at uh, Wishard up in Indianapolis okay. for like seven years or something like that. And then I was still in the Guard, National Guard at the time because I came up active duty, went to the Guard. And then I said, well, what am I going to do now? I said, I guess I'll go to PA school. Okay. And so I did. And that led you back to the Ranger Regiment and you became the, the, so you had to go back through selection and then you became uh, the regimental PA, right? I uh, went to, um, after PA school, I went to Korea for a year, and then I went, yes, then I went back to the selection process, a little differently for officers, okay. uh, not quite as grueling as as it is for the enlisted. But yeah, then I went to 1st Battalion, uh, back to 1st Battalion as a PA, and then eventually to our the Special Troops Battalion, and then to the Regimental Headquarters. Wow. So, so for those of you, like, you know, some of our, you know, 
most of our people probably aren't military. Um, you know, the 75th Ranger Regiment is really one of the premier forces in the U.S. military. These are the guys that are out in the dark of night going after bad guys, uh, a very high tempo. Um, if you want to see, you know, action, this is probably the place you go, right? I think there are a lot of awesome things about the Ranger Regiment and we do a lot of really cool stuff and we are probably one of the more unknown uh, units out there as far as what we do. Uh, but yes, there's a lot of good times to be had. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. We'll leave it at that. Um, and we'll, we'll get back into, we'll touch on more of the military uh, in the background because it, it does have a significant effect. Um, what the military's learned and what has been passed on to civilians, it's almost like you guys germinate this stuff and then it comes down to the civilian world. Would that be kind of a fair point? I, I Yeah, I mean, I think historically, if you look at, you know, our trauma care uh, in general from pre-hospital all the way through surger, surgical care and, and the post-operative setting, um, a lot of advances that we see um, all have come from combat, you know, not just uh, U.S., you know, uh, other forces too, you know, other countries, uh, you know, we see a lot of great advances from that. And, I, you know, I guess if there's one good thing to come out of, of you know, conflict and war uh, is, is those advances that are made. Yeah, and, and the data seems to back that up. Um, you know, you see the uh, death from preventable injuries. I know this is something they talk about in uh, PHTLS. They talk about in the TECC and TCCC curriculum that how over the years um, the death rate for, uh, you know, combat soldiers has dropped. And a lot of that's attributed to a focus on hemorrhage care, stopping the bleed, uh and things like that, um, you know, the idea of every red cell counting. Um, and I, I don't know that that's actually translated into the civilian world as of yet. Um, do, you, do you think it's just we're lagging behind or is it a matter of it's catching up or? I, um, I don't know. You know, my take on what, what we see in the civilian sector is, is it's, I think it's difficult uh, to kind of make that direct correlation. I, I think there are a lot of great advances. I think part of the problem that we've seen is, you know, not everyone agrees with me on this. I think we, we saw success with things like tourniquets in combat and we automatically said, well, they automatically are going to work for the civilian sector without any, uh, that's not, I shouldn't say we didn't really do a great analysis of it, but I, I think maybe some of our training hasn't caught up to it. I think the equipment is there. I think people are doing it, but I don't think we have identified the best practices as far as employing things like tourniquets and other hemorrhage control devices. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think the civilian world hasn't picked up on that? I, I think because we said, well, you can just apply a tourniquet to anything and, you, and it's safe and go for it versus telling people, hey, you should apply a tourniquet to amputations, arterial hemorrhage, and and hemorrhage uh, not otherwise controlled, right? Uh, instead, we see people showing up with tourniquets on for, uh, you know, uh, you know, cutters, right? So, you know, the people who, those, those people with psychiatric issues who, you know, superficially cut themselves, 
uh, and they'll show up in an ER with a tourniquet on. And it's like, clearly that doesn't need a tourniquet. So I think we lack on the education about, you know, what are the, what are the indications for a tourniquet? And you hear arguments all the time, well, it's safe for two hours. Well, we shouldn't just do things to patients simply because we can, and it may not hurt them. There's still, you know, adverse events and, and such associated with, with uh, things like tourniquet use, even though we, it may be less common than other sort of adverse events associated with other uh, interventions that we may do to patients, but it still doesn't make it right just to do it because it, it can't hurt them. Well, it can, and you still shouldn't do something just because you can do it. Yeah, that that's really interesting, and I and I think that's something that you know we do see in the civilian um, classes is that you get this idea, okay, just throw a tourniquet on. Um, and I, I've had a couple instances in the field where where we've revised them, where we show up and you know, a first responder or you know, an EMT has put a tourniquet on, and it, it doesn't meet the criteria. You know what I mean? It's it's right. pretty controlled with a pressure dressing, and they get very upset, but y- they don't have that we're not reinforcing that knowledge like, Hey, it's okay. We can do this. It's right. not needed for this, you know? Um, so let's get back going back, you know, circling back to training and a culture and how you do things. Um, the, I read the, I've read this paper, uh, Cotwell et al in 2011 and it's an old paper, but it's a really interesting article in that, um, it showed that, um, your unit, the, the, the Ranger regiment, uh, even though they they saw a lot of a lot more action per se than maybe other units uh, during wartime, your your units, um, you know, um, deaths and deaths from preventable hemorrhage were far less than the uh, regular army population. And from my reading, you know, it seems that you. You're, the Rangers especially, and I'm sure it's gone out to all the other special operations forces, and I don't know if it's filtered out to the regular units, it seems to be it's, it's as p- far forward at the point of injury that c- care is delivered. Can you kind of go over that and tell us what, what, why does it work for you guys so well? Uh, probably the fundamentals. You know, it's, it's about simply uh, enabling the person to your right and left to be able to recognize and treat the three most common causes of potentially survivable death on the battlefield. Uh, And that would be massive hemorrhage, um, airway obstruction, and tension with thorax. And it's as simple as that. You drill it all the time. So you're practicing all the time. Every single event uh, is has some sort of medical training as part of it. It's as simple as that. It's making a, a priority within the command. So you, you go all the way back to Sergeant Major Michael Hall. And, you know, when General McChrystal, Sam McChrystal was the regional commander, they, they made that a priority. They said, we're going to make medicine or your medical care at the point of injury one of the big things that we're going to focus on. And, uh, you know, they were very early adopters of TCCC, you know, way, you know, years before, I shouldn't say years before 9-11, but, you know, we're talking 1998, you know, and right. TCCC came out in 1996. Uh, so before everyone else uh, had thought about it, they were doing it. And so every time, even when I was enlisted, you know, medical care was part of the training. So you got, you go training, you do these live fires and you do all this other stuff. There's always some sort of casualty play, always. And so it was about ensuring that everyone understood the importance of casualty care, 
Um, but then focusing on the fundamentals and ensuring that everyone knew how to do the basics. And that's the key is the fundamentals. Yeah, that that's something that, um, you know, I, I find amazing is that, you know, the, the old adage, um, you know, amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think in the civilian world, I think there's a de-emphasis on, you know, the basic care up front that really makes a huge difference, um, especially in trauma and penetrating trauma. Um, you know, we, we talk about a lot, of, you know, there's a lot of arguments in the civilian world about, you know, scoop and run, diesel bolus, things like that. Um, there's a study out there, you know, a lot of people like to talk about the study, um, you know, about uh, from Band et al. that talks about um, that basically trauma patients in the inner city did well, did better than when they were treated by paramedics. Now, is that a training issue? What, do you think that we're just missing the boat. Um, you know, what? yeah, I, uh, I think it's well, a few different things. I, I'm going to quickly come back to the idea that what we did is fundamentals and, and roll it into a current concept that's still flowing around out there that, that I think is uh, just obvious why it doesn't work. But for some people, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And that's the idea of the, um, RTFs, right? The Rescue Task Force. So yeah, that's a task, big thing. Yeah, so people, I'll Rescue Task Force. Name one. If anyone can name an event where a Rescue Task Force saved a life, um, please, please let us know. Uh, we haven't. I haven't necessarily noted any. Uh, some of my colleagues haven't noted any. And I think the issue is, is that the, this idea that one, you're going to be able to get everyone together randomly and they're just going to be able to go in and they're going to be able to save all these lives one most of the incidences are over by the time anyone ever shows up and and two as i talked about practicing and making a part of the everyday training and and what we did is the fundamentals no one does that so how many how many municipalities are you know using their public safety uh entities to get together and go out there and practice these sort of events so if anyone shows up, they can just go in. They don't. And, and so the idea that RTF is going to work by just randomly people are going to show up and it's just going to work magically without putting any effort towards uh, trying to train towards a standard to be able to do that properly, I, I think it's it's a lost cause. It does buy a lot of vests, though. It does. Yeah. <laughs> everyone, everyone looks so cool in them. Uh, yeah. But 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 yeah, I mean if we want to talk about, you know, police picking people up and taking them to the hospital, that's fantastic. I, I think though if you if you know what what are they doing for these people in the back of an ambulance? You know, uh they're pushing, you know, cold crystalloid, uh and you know, they're you know, doing things that we know probably doesn't save lives. They're probably trying to innovate these people. And they're doing things that aren't necessarily fundamental, uh, yet doing things that we know are probably not helpful. Uh, and no fault of necessarily the paramedics or and such. It's just that's that if that's what they have. That's what they have, right? Right. And uh, and I, I'm not necessarily uh, uh, saying that they didn't practice that, that they practice bad medicine. I'm saying that I think the evidence supports not doing what some of 
their protocol state. So would you, would you say it's, it, it, and I, I've, I've had this discussion with people and I, I'm kind of of the mind that it's got to be an investment. If you're going to put time in to do something at the scene or at the point of injury, it's got to, it's got to have a benefit on the back end, right? I mean, if I bring somebody to the trauma center in four minutes, that's great. But if they're, if they've, if they've exsanguinated at this, you know, during the transport and I bring them to you, that's great. You can do a thoracotomy, but we know statistically that's not a good outcome. Right. But if I take yeah. the, but if I take 30 seconds and I seal somebody's chest or I apply a tourniquet appropriately, or I use a combat gauze, or I do a needle decompression or a double decompression if, if needed, and I get pulses back, and then I spend the time getting to you. Now, now I've got a viable patient. Now you get a chance to work your magic. So what, what do you think about that? I think uh, life threats should be addressed um, at the point of injury. And I think that's what you're uh, alluding to is if someone is, yes, someone is actively bleeding from a junction, junctional hemorrhage or from a, a limb uh, at the point of injury, um, you shouldn't just pick them up and throw them in the back of an ambulance. You should control that hemorrhage prior to, especially hemorrhage. Uh, you should you should control it before leaving the scene, and and that is for compressible hemorrhage, right? So again, sure. that's junctional and limb hemorrhage. Uh, you know, things that you can control, you should control, and it shouldn't take more than, you know, a, a minute, two minutes to be able to control uh, some hemorrhage. Uh, you know, there, there, I'm sure there are situations to where, you know, someone will be like, well, what about this? Well, great. I, I get it. There, there's a, always some sort of different situation that someone can counter to that. But I'm simply stating that people bleed out and die. Uh, so control the hemorrhage if all possible before, you know, taking off for the hospital. I think, I think that's common sense approach. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I think in the civilian world, there's a lot of pushback against that. It's either we're sitting at scene, we're trying to put a 22 or a 20 in somebody's arm, and you know, or we're trying to intubate when we know that that doesn't contribute to good outcomes, um, yeah. or you know, we're like you said, like we said before, you're you're rushing somebody to the hospital and there's blood pouring out over the floor that person's losing blood. They're, they're, they're losing clotting factors. They're, they're going to get acidotic. They're going to be sick. You know, they're not covered up. And again, you know, yeah, I might get them to you in time and you may only be five minutes from the hospital, but at the back end, when they're in the ICU and they're not doing well and they're in organ failure, what have we truly done? Right. I, and I think that's, uh, I, I think it like this. I'm allowed, or I'm expected, I should say, to uh, put on a tourniquet when someone is shooting at me in combat. Yet, I wouldn't expect someone to be able to put on a tourniquet in a completely benign scene, uh, you know, where no, one, like, where no one is shooting at you, uh, or you're not in imminent danger. Um, I'm expected to just like, I'm throwing back of an ambulance, and somehow en route, I'm going to control that hemorrhage. I mean, if if I if I'm expected to put on a tourniquet with someone shooting at me, I think we should expect EMTs and paramedics to be able to perform that skill, you know, in their every on an everyday call. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree. I I don't think that's that's uh, too crazy of an idea. 
I agree a hundred percent. Um, one of the other things, um, there's a lot of tourniquets out there. There's a lot of people wearing them. It seems to be the new fashionable thing in uh civilian EMS. Um, anything you notice, any pet peeves? Um, uh, one for me is like, uh, the little Velcro strap for the windlass is, you know, over the, uh, over the clip <laughs> or something like that. Like, so it's not ready to use. It's like, I, if, I you're, if you're going to, if you're going to do it, do it right. Right. I don't know. Look at my kid. I mean, I've done it before. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's, if you are trained to be able to put to and practiced to be able to use that tourniquet, I don't think the amount of time that would take to undo that would necessarily matter. Uh, I, I do believe that if, if, you know, you're working in a group, it's probably better to leave it open. So everyone knows it has the uh, regular or I shouldn't say regular, but, but everyone has the same sort of standard approach. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't get confusing. I, to, to me, uh, some people can't believe that, that I, I take this point, the stand, but I just, I just don't care Okay. for things like that. Now, uh, other things that bother me, um, <laughs> mostly just applying tourniquets to things that don't need tourniquets. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's get into that a little bit. Um, you know, we, you know, in my, in my place, uh, I do have the ability when I get on scene, my, my medical director's like, okay, you can assess that. And if you don't think that that tourniquet needs to be applied, you can take that tourniquet down, uh, try to control with the pressure dressing. Uh, we've done it a few times. It literally sends people into a tizzy because they, they think it's just, well, what are you doing? You're going to kill the patient. And, you know, these things are built for certain things. They're not built for that moderate bleed that you should just put some pressure on or an Israeli bandage or something like that. These are, these are amputations. These are arterial bleeds and there is a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I probably took down more tourniquets than I left on. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, Simply taking the time, and I think even tourniquets, uh, wounds that where tourniquet may be useful, I think you could still probably pack it appropriately. Uh, you know, it, simply because you, you may see in our little bit of arterial bleed doesn't mean that it can't be controlled with a good pressure dressing. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe in tourniquet conversion for EMS. I think it should be a regular practice, at least for paramedics, you know, for EMTs. I don't know. I, I don't know their level of training per se versus experience. You know, is it something you can, you can teach? I mean, I, you can teach it, but at, at what level do you stop expecting people to be able to assess and determine if a tourniquet needs to be applied or not? No, I, I think you're right. I think at the EMT level, I think they should have a decent threshold to put it on. But if they're not sure, go ahead and put it on. I'll get there. I'll take a look at it. If it needs to come come down, it can come down. If I'm not sure, yeah. I'll leave it. And then that's your yeah. decision. Um, you know, but it, it's really interesting how that that's kind of, you know, uh, how, how tourniquets were starting to see more um, development of the science of this um, from all the way from back in the middle of the 20th century when it was, you don't put a tourniquet on. And this, this, when I went to EMT school in the eighties, it was, you don't put a tourniquet on unless you're preparing to sacrifice that limb. And then we kind of went back to the other way where everybody gets a tourniquet, no matter what high and tight for everybody. And now it's kind of, we're starting to, you're seeing the refinement of the technique. 
Yeah. Oh, and yeah, another pet peeve is people who insist that high and tight is a more effective, more effective for tourniquets versus putting on lower on two bone compartments. Okay. Uh, go a little bit more on that. Um, so a two bone compartment, like the radius and the ulna or the tip yeah. fib, so to speak, right. as opposed to the femur. And, uh, you're looking at basically your ideal placement for that is if you're not basically the way I read it from the classes is if you're not getting shot at, don't go high and tight two to three inches above the wound. You're, you're, you're just fine. You're going to, it'll be okay. Right. And tourniquets work better. The more distal they're placed. If you, you have to look at the width of the tourniquet and, and the, you know, circumference of, of the limb. Uh, and there's an equation that goes along with that, but, yeah, the wider tourniquet and the smaller the circumference, the easier it is to compress uh, the underlying tissues uh, and control hemorrhage. And simply because there are two bones doesn't mean that you can't control an arterial hemorrhage. It, it's it's uh, not that difficult, and certainly there's studies out there that demonstrate that it's effective. Okay. Yeah, I, I think people forget that. And and again, I think it goes back to what you said. You know, you have to practice with this stuff till you're comfortable with it. You have to do it till it almost becomes second nature. Um, if you're just carrying something and you look at it every once in a while, or, you know, like you said with the, the rescue task force concept, I, I've never understood how practicing two or four times a year is going to get you proficient enough to do this when it really needs to be done. So I, I, I don't know about the, the validity of these things either. I've always kind yeah. of scratched my head about it. Um, let, let's let's talk about something a little more advanced, uh, something that's gaining traction in the civilian world that I would have said if you told me five or 10 years ago, I would have said, no, you're nuts. It's never going to happen. Um, we're starting to see civilian EMS carrying blood and blood products out in the field. Um, you've done a lot of the leading work on low titer O-neg whole blood. Um, can you kind of just take us through like where where did this come from what's the benefits of you know someone coming in with a unit or two of whole blood as opposed to packed red cells or anything else that's out there and uh you know let's just where where do you where did this come from and what was the idea uh so first it, it's uh the rh factor doesn't really matter uh you know, O negative is a pretty small percentage of the overall population. Uh, so RH positive is uh, far more prevalent. And, and the fact that RH doesn't really, it doesn't cause an immediate reaction. And only a, you know, I think 20, around 20%, we eventually have any sort of, you know, uh, conversion. And of that, even a smaller percentage will actually have be symptomatic with anything. So uh, it, it's safe to do uh, RH positive blood, and and pretty much in fact in everyone. Uh, so uh, you know, whole blood came from you know they've been looking at that for you know a century now. Uh, a lot of it during World War One, where they were doing a lot of fresh whole blood transfusions. And they carried that forward until World War II. Uh, at that time, they did start, you know, doing things like, uh, uh, like plasma, like freeze-dried plasma and such. Uh, but, but 
there was a significant amount of whole blood transfused during uh, World War II and then in the Korean War. And uh, it was up until, it wasn't until like the 1960s in Vietnam where we started seeing more of, you know, component therapy. And then we see this idea that, that crystalloids are somehow magically going to, you know, maintain blood pressure and everything's going to be all right. So it was really about 60 years of good whole blood. And then we started getting to like 40 years of crystalloid. And so we're just kind of just doing what they did back then. And it, it works and the evidence is there to support it. There's far more evidence to support whole blood than there is things like crystalloids. Yeah. I, I, crystalloids, I, I think is starting to translate out to civilian world that we're, we're finally starting to get away from the uh, two liters, uh, lactated ringers, wide open, large bore IVs that you get on the uh, NREMT exam. Um, and, you know, we know, we, I think the evidence is pretty behind in the pretty behind that. And the evidence has really filtered down to the rank and file at this point that, you know, giving a lot of fluid to somebody is not good for them. It's going to cause a lot of problems down the line metabolically. Um, we also don't give warm fluids. Very few places mm -hmm. have, uh, you know, fluid warmers in the trucks. Um, we do, but you know, there's places that don't and you're putting ice cold or 70 degree fluid in somebody's, uh, you know, into somebody's body that's hypothermic and that causes more, problems with coagulation and we want the bleeding to stop we don't want mm -hmm. them to continue bleeding um so you know right now um what would your recommendation be to somebody who's got a trauma patient who's got a bleed that you know we can't control you know non-compressible hemorrhage we talk you know you talk about um you, you got you're going to start an iv because you got the time and you think it's going to be a benefit what, what do you do yeah, I, I I think allowing people to become a little bit more hypotensive than what we have traditionally felt comfortable doing uh, may be something worth evaluating. Uh, you know, I think most of the data that is supporting, hey, don't don't you know put their blood pressure to ninety. You know, the whole idea of hypotensive resuscitation at eighty systolic. What happens if you do it at 70? What's, what's the difference between 70 and 80? Is there a difference there in mortality? And I don't, I don't think anyone's really ever done a good look at that. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I'd feel more comfortable uh, personally allowing pressures to drop a little bit. Uh, but if I had to resuscitate and all I had was crystalloid, you know, I would start at a little bit lower pressure and, maintain them at, a, at you know what happens if you keep them at 70 uh and giving you know hey let's give 250 and see what happens uh and i think that's that's something worth evaluating if you can't put blood everywhere uh is is having people feel more comfortable with not doing anything versus trying to do something because it makes them feel good and i think that's part of what ems is a lot of pre-hospital medicine is the kind of the thing. It's like, well, I got to do something. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd know. agree with that. You know, people with low blood pressures get us scared uh, as a group, and we feel like we've got to do something. We've got to improve that blood pressure. Um, and, you know, even blood pressure, let's be honest, even, you know, most of the ways we're doing it is probably not accurate at all, uh, especially with your shock patients that, um, you know, with your NIBPs, you're not going to get good 
readings. You're, it just doesn't pan out. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, you know, little tiny boluses, just enough. Do you go to a number or are we going to level of consciousness or perfusion signs? What? I don't think you can really say one number. Like, people, like you know, people argue over MAP versus systolic blood pressure. And uh, it was a good Twitter conversation uh, with some surgeons about that. And it doesn't really matter. Like, oh, yeah, you can use MAP. You can use systolic blood pressure. You can use whatever you want. Uh, but you have to use other signs and and clinical signs and and other measurements too it all has to be a big picture sort of approach so yeah that's great you know i like systolic blood pressure in the pre-hospital military environment because i don't want to have to do math to do a map uh it's and and you know we're using things like 100 systolic and uh uh we want a blood pressure of 100 systolic and we want a heart rate less than 100 so we want 100 to 100 are kind of our magic numbers that we're trying to get to uh, and keeping the heart rate down, keeping the blood pressure up. Uh, and that's, you know, utilizing blood products. And so I, I, I think you have to, yeah, use things like heart rate, uh, shock index, uh, use MAP if you want. Use, yeah, uh, you know, our, what's their mental status? Uh, do you have uh, things like lactate uh, or you know, like SVO2 and, and entitled CO2 and all these other little nifty tools we have out there uh, to be able to assess people. So you have to, you, yeah, you have to, it has to be a whole big picture sort of approach to, to how we assess our patients to determine if they're responding to our therapy. That's, that's a great point. And that's something that's not really reinforced in civilian EMS is that we're not we're, we're not encouraged to be clinicians in a lot of places. It's more of a technician thing. It's see this, do this. Um, so let's, so going back to whole blood, um, it, tell me the benefits of it as opposed to, you know, we have, we have places around us that are using whole blood. Uh, specifically, we have a physician response program in my area that's using it. Um, we have flight medic flight teams that are using packed red cells, um, basically everybody, uh, you know, somebody goes to you and says, ah, I don't know, it's all, it's, it's all just stuff in a bag. What's, if you're hurt, what would you rather get and why, what's it going to do for you vis-a-vis packed red cells, plasma, something like that? Well, I, if I bleed whole blood, I would like to get it back as one product. Uh, and that's the great thing about it. It's, it's one product, uh, and it, it, it gives back exactly what you're losing uh so it uh you know you keep adding all these different products and if you look at the ratio of things like additives and and such to component therapy you're looking basically at three times the anticoagulants and additives and all that stuff in in component therapy versus whole blood uh you know whole blood maintains pretty good hemostatic potential, you know, fresh whole blood is obviously the best, you know, if I can take a unit off me and I can give it just directly to someone else that has all the hundred percent, uh, you know, the, the hemostatic potential oxygen carry capacity, uh, is fantastic. Uh, but you know, that's not really an option, uh, wherever you are in the EMS system. So, but, but whole blood is still great. You still have, uh, plenty, you have higher amounts of, uh, of, uh, you know, hematocrit and hemoglobin, you have higher platelet counts, uh, and you um, also have better hemostatic potential. 
uh, versus trying to do it all in a one-to-one-to-one therapy. Uh, you know, the, the advantage also is if you look at the uh, uh, endotheliopathy that you end up getting with, uh, you know, um, or, you know, uh, trauma-induced coagulopathy, acute traumatic coagulopathy, a couple different names for it. Uh, whole blood kind of helps attenuate that a little bit uh, through the use of plasma. Uh, RBCs are great, and you know you can carry oxygen. That's fantastic. Uh, but but you know if I'm not fixing the dysfunction with my with the coagulation, then you know potentially still going to be bleeding onto the ground. So great, I can carry oxygen, but I'm still maybe bleeding. I'm not saying that that yeah. If I give you know this one thing, it's going to automatically stop. But but I'm saying that it is probably more helpful to give something like plasma versus whole blood, then plasma, then RBCs. Uh, so that's, that's my, uh, that's my rationale. You give whole blood because that's what I'm losing. If I don't have whole blood and I can only choose one product, then I'll give plasma versus RBCs. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, and, and that's just because the plasma is carrying clotting factors. It's carrying the other things that you really need as opposed to the preservatives that are in the red blood cells that are going to possibly cause a coagulopathy? So, well, I mean, you, you, we know that, uh, yeah, plasma also is, has additives and anticoagulants uh, collected with it. Uh, I'm just saying that, that plasma, yeah, offers the addition of, of fixing that coagulation issue uh, and fixing some of the... Um, destruction and injury to the endothelium uh, and potentially could overall attenuate some of the overall um, issues that come with hemorrhage from trauma. Uh, okay. There's, there's a couple different uh, good papers out there that kind of explain it. But I mean, if you look at, look at uh, the paper trial, right? Okay. So, so Pamper uh, looked at uh, what giving plasma, and they found that uh, giving plasma uh, was better than using RBCs with crystalloid. Uh, that was the traditional approach. Overall, they had better survival if they gave plasma with RBCs, and that makes sense. The closer you get to whole blood, the probably better off your patients are going to be. So. That, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and it, it, it just seems so simple, uh, which is funny why we have, why we've like not brought this around uh, for 60 years. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, I, I've heard this about fresh whole blood and, you know, around, you know, I, you, you, you hear stuff around the crew room and you hear people talking and they're like, you know, if we, if we put a unit of, uh, you know, whole blood on every ambulance, um, we're going to throw out a ton of blood and the blood banks are going to freak out and um, it costs a ton of money and it's not going to really contribute to outcomes. What's your thoughts on that? I think in order to be successful, you, you need to have a more system wide approach. Uh, it's, it's hard to do, I think, as a, just as a service, this is one to do that. Uh, certainly STRAC is probably the, the go-to model that everyone talks about nowadays. And uh, that's the way they do it. You know, they use hospitals, they use their helicopter EMS, and they use their ground 
transports and they kind of rotate the blood around and they have a overall in 2019 had a better um, or a, a, a better waste rate than than they do for regular blood pro regular blood products wow so it was like one percent one percent waste that's impressive yeah but, but you know they they've got they've got the system approach uh, yeah they and I think that's hard to do for many places where hospitals don't way may not support the fact that EMS is utilizing whole blood. I, I think I, I, I've never said that you can put blood on every single ambulance. You can't. Uh, and not even in these places that are carrying whole blood, do they have blood on every single ambulance? It's, it's about finding the, it's about doing an analysis and finding out which ambulance would most benefit from using, utilizing whole blood. And that's for both trauma and non-trauma calls, you know, things like GI bleeds and, and, uh, you know, like postpartum hemorrhage, those things happen. Uh, and then it's, it's about, uh, finding the, you know, the training, the, those crews to be able to do it and, you know, putting it on manager, supervisor, whatever you want to call it, put them on, you know, the, the vehicles that are out there. Uh, the, the non-transporting vehicles to be able to respond quickly. And I think that's the key to, to doing it. I think what's going to be amazing is if we can get freeze-dried plasma up and running here in the U.S. Now that can sit on the shelf for, what, two years? Yeah, uh, freeze-dried plasma seems very promising. Um, I know yeah. that there's been some interesting studies in the military about it. Uh, it certainly would do the shelf life and the temperature stable aspect of it. And, you know, like you said, it's not whole blood, but it's a lot better than what we have right now and could contribute to survival. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's really exciting to me is the idea that we can get freeze-dried plasma out there. What what's what seems to be the holdup? What's the downside with that? Why isn't why aren't we embracing this? Uh, I don't know. It's about embracing. You know, it's it fell out of favor back in uh, probably the Korean War timeframe because of the hepatitis A and and some other transmittal transfusion transmitted diseases. Okay. And so it kind of fell out of favor at that point. Our testing has gotten better, but then we also now we have fresh rosin plasma. And that's been in rotation for, for how long? Uh, so I, we haven't necessarily needed it for anything uh, because of the way our current uh, whole blood banking works. Uh, the French have been utilizing their version of freeze-dried plasma since 1994. Their current version, obviously, you know, if you, like I said, freeze-dried plasma goes back to before World War II. Uh, so it, it's, it's about kind of changing the idea that one, you can do blood products in pre-hospital setting, but two, that, that, you know, things like freeze-dried plasma would be worthwhile. Uh, and, you know, we're trying to, well, I think we kind of set an example that it can work in the military. Uh, now it's just about making, getting a U.S. product that's FDA approved. Yeah, I was going to say that because there were some special operations forces um, in combat theaters that were using uh, freeze-dried plasma, and uh, there seemed to be good results from that. Was a, Am I correct? Uh, I don't know if we have a good enough numbers to say, you know, good results. Uh, you know, there were some, some issues with the uh, French product in combat, at least at the point of injury, uh, being that it's somewhat kind of cumbersome to put together. Uh, 
okay. a little bit. So it can it's be a, a little confusing. It's a glass bottle, right? There are two glass bottles. Yeah, that that could be, I could see that being a problem in yeah. a combat environment. What they what they're doing now is looking at you know I can I can have one uh, just a bag of water, and then I can have yeah maybe a, a smaller container either plastic or or you know glass or something that that can have the plasma in it, and then I can just kind of squirt the water in there and reconstitute it and hang it. But again, much so that, much better than crystalloid. Uh, <laughs> plasma is all say you you know what's next also should be fantastic is using uh plasma for burn resuscitation getting away from get away from crystalloids for burns too you know that that's something that i haven't thought of and you know you notice that they they've revised down the uh, fluid requirements even the parkland formula is kind of cut almost in half now and uh i know especially in in you know in our in the civilian world you know, when you get a severe burn or a critical burn patient, you know, you know, this, and I don't know what it is. I think, again, it's this lack of training. It's a lack of re repetition. Um, you know, people hang two bags of ringers and go wide open and, you know, we're over resuscitating people. And, you know, there's people out there, um, some really smart people have said for years that, you know, that's just as bad as under resuscitating a burn patient. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Absolutely. I mean, I just put something out on my Instagram, I think the other week about it. Yes. It's, we're totally over resuscitating so many of these burns and it's not really addressing the issue. Again, plasma is fantastic. The, it's amazing how it can correct, you know, some of these, uh, some of the inflammation, uh, coagulopathy and, and other issues that are associated with, you know, with trauma. Uh, so you know, again, it's nothing new. They were doing this back in World War II. Uh, sure. We're just trying to stir the pot enough to get people to think about doing something that's already been demonstrated to work. Yeah, and it's funny if you go through the history books or you go, you know, you Google search this stuff. I, you see the, uh, you know, those iconic pictures of, you know soldiers on d-day and you know their medics are holding up bottles and it, that's plasma they're getting plasma they weren't getting saline they weren't getting you know other stuff that's what they had that's what right. was first line fluid um what about plasma for sepsis you think that would work good i you don't know. know if there's any anything out there on it but uh i mean they talk about uh Talk about like convalescent plasma for, for things like COVID. I, I get it. That's probably more antibody related. Uh, but is there something to the anti-inflammatory effects and uh, overall um, uh, just repairing the you know this this whole uh, you know it's you get this leaky these leaky uh vessels and whatnot uh and things like sepsis uh then could that help repair it uh, and or at least attenuate it a little bit maybe an interesting uh, point how how would you start talking to your medical director i mean you were a paramedic how do you start talking to your medical director like to say hey doc i think we should be putting this on the truck or we should be thinking about piloting this or do you think it's uh, not ready for prime time yet uh I, th I think you have to 
do your do your due diligence and review the available data and literature and have an understanding of what the studies say and and not only i think you know when people talk about you know great you have an idea what's your solution so it's great that you you have all this data and everything to support it but how are you going to implement it so maybe bring something forward to say hey if you're going to do it here's an idea about how you can you know, uh, uh, implement it. Now that you don't have to have all the answers, but I think you have to have some sort of course of action. Right. Don't just come in there with a couple papers, dump them on the desk and say, Hey, this is do this. Let's get this yeah. done. Okay. Or, or maybe just simply ask, say, Hey, you know, I'm kind of interested in this. Uh, I'd like to, cause you know, may, maybe they don't want you like asking around or if, if someone finds out that you've been talking to other people about doing X, Y, or Z, uh, they'd be like, what are you doing? Maybe ask say, Hey, I'm interested in this. May I pursue maybe just some courses of action and ask around? Okay. Fair point. Uh, that, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. Um, let's talk about pain management real quick. I think it's something that we underutilize in trauma. Um, I know that, uh, the military is pretty aggressive with this. Um, what's your thoughts? What do you like? Um, what what works? Uh, what shouldn't we be doing, so to speak? Uh, shouldn't be given morphine. How about that? That's a good one. Go go with I, it. I don't I don't like morphine. Uh, it's it's a two hundred year old drug uh, that is has you know relatively high. Uh, reaction, whether it be allergic or, you know, just side effects. Okay. Uh, I think we got better options out there for opioids. Fentanyl and Dilaudid are pretty fantastic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we we still carry morphine, but we got fentanyl. I don't can't tell you the last time I've ever given morphine in the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't recall the last time I've given morphine. I really, I I can't. Uh, I think it's. I don't know. It's just I, something about it. I just don't like uh, outside of the other, the other reasons that just there are better drugs. Uh, fentanyl, I think is fantastic. Uh, short acting. It's pretty quick onset. Uh, I think it's pretty safe in trauma. I don't think we're seeing a lot of big bounces up and down or drops in blood pressure uh, in these trauma patients. Okay. So, yeah, you can probably give a little bit of it if you need to. So, Doc, let's let's talk about ketamine because it seems to be it's a it's the sexy new drug. Everybody thinks they know everything about it, um, and I don't think we know as much about it as we should. And I think it may be getting overused. It may be getting used for the wrong reasons. Um, what's your thoughts? I think we probably are utilizing it too often, and not. And we don't have a solid understanding of its dosing and how to administer it uh, when we do utilize it. Uh, if you look at some of the some of the side effects of you know pushing ketamine too fast or you know giving too much of a dose, you know it puts people into the quote unquote K hole, which I find to be. Uh, medically from a medical professional kind of an inappropriate term you know you're doing partial disassociation and that is not the goal of ketamine the, the goal should be an analgesic dose uh you know 
which I consider about 0.1 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram, or are you going for sedation? You know, if you my first case series that I published uh, on ketamine, we were putting people in partially disassociating people. Uh, and the idea was, is that, hey, these people had horrific injuries at the point of injury. You know, they're missing both their legs. They need something more than some, you know, a small analgesic dose of ketamine. Uh, but we weren't doing a complete disassociation. So we ended up using uh, a lot of things like like Merced and such. Uh, and looking back, it was probably the incorrect way to go about it. Uh, really should have just been complete disassociation. Uh, I believe that is beneficial for significant injuries, uh, but that is different. So if we're talking analgesic dose, 0.1 to 0.4 milligrams. And then if you're going to do it, put it in a bag and give it over, you know, three to 15 minutes, you know, depending on what study you look at, that's, that's enough time to kind of negate some of those unpleasant sensations. Right. You know, those, I think psych those psychotropic yeah, yeah. effects. Yeah. Which we're trying yeah. to, you want analgesia without that. Right. And you can certainly do that with, you know, even up to, you know, like I said, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, but you got to do it a little slower. You can't just, you know, push ketamine and, and expect people to be like, oh, hey, I don't feel anything. Nothing's wrong with me. Yeah. So you want to negate those, all those unpleasant sensations is what I call them. Uh, and that could be in any number of things. Could be, you know, maybe it's some hallucinations. Maybe it's some sort of weird sensation that they can't really describe. Uh, and, and the idea is that if we just slow it down, they'll get that same analgesic dose. Uh, and it'll last probably a little bit longer than you just kind of pushing it in. Uh, even people who do it, hey, I'm going to slow IV push. There's, if you're getting up again into those larger analgesic doses, then you know you may be having some issues. Uh, so at least at least dilute it, I guess. You know, okay. uh, you know, if you got a 50, if you got 100 milligrams per milliliter, put it in 10 cc's. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And just, just run it in slow. You, you want them to not have those psychotropic effects. You want them to have analgesia. Right. And if you, and, and if you think they need that, then give them the two milligrams per kg and put them down. And that's, that's my next point was the idea that we need to give someone a benzodiazepine because we partially disassociated them. I think it's probably the wrong way to go. I think it's better to say, okay, you're only partially disassociated now. Let me just take it the full way uh, and make you completely disassociated. And that way, whenever they come out, there's still less likelihood of, I think, of having something like emergence phenomenon versus just having them an unpleasant sort of partial disassociation. Uh, and I think that's obviously it's up to the medical director to determine that. But, but that's my approach at this point is I'd rather just give more ketamine then try to mess around and push a benzo. Okay. Um, a couple, couple things I want to run by you real quick before we move on is I've heard this. Uh, I don't know if it's a wives tale. I don't know if it's anecdotal. There's certainly no evidence to it. Uh, is there any validity to the idea that um, talking to somebody before administering ketamine as they go down, that's how they're going to come up. Um, also, what about the idea that, 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 
patients who've received ketamine after trauma seem to have less PTSD. Have you seen this? Does this seem to be something that is worth studying? Uh, should we be considering this in our patients where, you know, we're looking at severe trauma or a really, a really bad event? Is that, is that, a, is that something we should be thinking about? I, I believe that there's probably some evidence to support if you're going to, you know, talk to your patient beforehand, but that could go for a lot of things, right? That could go for just generally for anesthesia, right? Sure. Uh, you know, you know, if you go to the OR, they're not yelling at you, right? They're like, Hey, it's all right. Hey, yeah. All right. Happy place. Yeah. Happy place. Right? right. So, I mean, I think that could go for a lot of different, uh, either anesthetics, sedat you know, sedation or, or whatever. Uh, as far as the PTSD, uh, if you look at the the stuff from was it uh, Holbrook? Yeah. Uh, right? Am I? Do I have that right? I believe that's correct. Only quick. Uh... And I'm gonna look it up here. So Holbrook, yeah. So it was uh, Holbrook who did the study in Iraq that demonstrated that giving morphine helps decrease PTSD. So I think treating any sort of, of pain in traumatic situations will help alleviate some of the uh, different long-term effects uh, from, from that uh, incident. Uh, you know, on, if you look at some of the stuff that uh, uh, Buckemeyer has put out, uh, you know, the, the untreated pain, uh, right? So... Uh, if, if you're not treating pain, what happens? Uh, you get a lot of things. Uh, you can get uh, anxiety. Uh, you can get depression. You can get chronic pain. Uh, um, overall, it leads to things like um, isolation, uh, all sorts of, you know, interesting interplay between this kind of neurobiology uh you know things like the um hpa access axis and and psychology so i don't think it's simple as like oh you know you just need to suck it up um and there's 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 a clear connection there i don't think we have a true understanding but i truly believe that if you want to help kind of help someone along with that process in the acute setting treat pain uh, appropriately. Yeah, I, I, th I think if you look at even, you know, again, my that first case series I put out, people with similar injuries uh, that were not treated with analgesics had more incidences of PTSD. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll link to those in the show notes. Uh, but, you know, I think it's something that we forget, especially when that, you know, we get that sympathetic surge and people are rushing around. It's that the pain management, it matters in trauma. That's something that's worth putting some time into um, because it's going to have benefits on the backside. And, and I think for EMS clinicians, we have to start thinking about the, what we do is has to pay off on the other side. If it doesn't pay off on the back end, it's not something we need to be, we should be doing. Yeah. I think the idea that, that pain's never killed anyone, well, maybe not in the acute setting, but again, it leads to things like depression, anxiety, social isolation, chronic pain, uh, and probably, uh, or not probably, but certainly could lead to things like PTSD. So 
could maybe down the road when they kill themselves is, I mean, what is that? Is I mean, it seems like a clear a clear connection between uh, inadequate pain management and some and some bad outcomes. I'll say everyone, uh, but certainly it can happen. Yeah, I agree. And I think even now with, you know, the, the, the use of intranasal ketamine or intranasal fentanyl, you know, there's no excuse not to anymore. You know, even if you're not going to start an IV on the way to the hospital, which is fine. I mean, we know that that doesn't make a huge difference, but you know, give them the nose spray, give them the, give them the fentanyl. They, they need it and it's going to benefit them down the road. Yeah. And I, and I, I, try to get people to think about using fentanyl more often in trauma and getting away from the, the, the fear that you're going to all of a sudden drop their blood pressure. Uh, I, you know, if you look at some of the studies out there, uh, there's, you don't see a lot of huge drops in blood pressure. Uh, you know, given things like a hundred micrograms, 50 to hundred, it's probably not going to cause significant blood pressure drops. Uh, and nor will it, nor will it create a condition of addiction. Um, you know, I'm I'm starting to see more patients where, you know, I have them in trauma, you know, in a trauma situation. I'm like, listen, I'm going to give you some pain medicine. I'm going to make you, make you feel a little bit better. And well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to give you some fentanyl and it's very good for this. Like, well, I don't want to die. I don't want to overdose. It's like, no, that's that's not going to happen. Um, it's very safe and you're not going to get addicted and it's okay. And yeah, it's funny that we have to have that conversation nowadays, but you know, it's just, it's these things that we have to break down this dogma. Um, so I'm, you know, I know we're coming up on a, you know, we've been talking for a while and I know you're just coming off of a shift. So I want to skip to a couple things that are really interesting. Um, you're really involved in the stop the bleed program. I mean, that was, that's uh, something that you've um, been uh, involved with since the beginning about bleeding, getting bleeding control out to people at the point of injury to lay people. Um, Tell us a little bit bit about that and how, I I think this is something that a lot of agencies in EMS aren't doing. Um, This is, this is the fire prevention for our, our profession and we're not even touching this. Um, how do we start this? How do we start involving this and getting this out to the public? And just talk a little bit about that. I'll be honest with you, I don't really know how at this point. I mean, outside of talk, continuing to talk about it, uh, I this is this is just a good analogy. This is the fire prevention of EMS. There's no reason why EMS shouldn't be out there talking in their communities to people and showing them these basic first aid, you know, uh, treatments. Uh, it's, it takes less than an hour sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't take that long to be able to say, Hey, here's something that here's how you should treat it. Or here's something that needs to be treated and here's how you treat it. Uh, and I, and I don't mean to talk bad about, um, other people in the healthcare setting, but if you work inside of a hospital, then we shouldn't, they should, they shouldn't be the primary go-to for things outside of the hospital. Uh, and you know, the, a lot of great trauma programs that are hospital, that are all these hospital based ideas that have people inside the hospital teaching these substantive programs. Uh, I don't know if it isn't, I don't, I don't know if it isn't, uh, just that fun for EMS people to get out there and teach. I don't think it's ever really been a huge priority for EMS to kind of be part of community education. I think that's mostly 
been probably more of honestly probably more of a nursing role. Uh, you see it in a lot of community uh, health clinics and such, uh, nurses being more proactive in that area. And I think they do a lot of things like stop the bleed courses. EMS should be completely out there, you know, reaching out to the public and saying, hey, let me teach you how to do this. But again, if we talk from the beginning of the show, we talk about how does EMS know how to properly assess and identify when things need a tourniquet versus you know, or pressure dressing or, or hemostatic dressing. So maybe there's an education uh, issue on the EMS side, but also a culture change issue. So where, where can uh, somebody go or an agency go if they want to pick up this program and start taking this out to like the shopping malls? I mean, eventually this pandemic's going to be over. Eventually we're uh, going to get back to some kind of normal, we hope. Um, hopefully. Where, what's a good resource to go to? Where can people go to learn about these programs? Uh, there are probably three uh, places that, that are leading the front on this. Uh, first one is for first care provider. Uh, and that's uh, a program that has stuff for the basic, uh, just everyday bystander, all the way through to the EMS uh, medical professional. And they also do have an instructor course that kind of teaches people how to teach people how to do this, which is fantastic. Uh, they have online courses uh, uh, along with being in person. Uh, there is the, um, the American College of Surgeons Stop the Bleed program that I think most people are probably most familiar with. And then there's one by FEMA called You Are the Help Until Help Arrives. I'm least familiar with that one. Uh, I've been very uh, involved with both, well, mostly with the American College of Surgeons Stop the Lead Program, but certainly as I have a personal relationship and friendship with uh, Josh Bobka, who, who kind of oversees the uh, first care provider stuff, uh, I think I think they do a fantastic job, especially they've took a lot of effort to make sure that that they are teaching people how to teach Stop the Lead, which I think is a great, great thing. Awesome. Uh, there's some other stuff out there, but those are really the the three that are supported by uh, by the uh, uh, DHS, which is overall kind of started this whole idea of stop the bleed. Yeah. And, and bottom line is, whatever program you you want to go with, we need to get out as a profession and start educating people. Um, yeah. if, if we believe that every red cell matters, if we believe that we can save lives from hemorrhage and trauma, we need to engage the public, just like the fire department's done with, you know, fire prevention, just like the police departments have done with community watch organizations, this stuff works. And, you know, we've got, if we're going to advance the profession, we need to, we need to start embracing this stuff. Um, so, you know, if this is your agency, if these, this seems like this is something that you're interested in out in, you know, overrun land, you know, go, go engage your, your management, go talk to your medical director, go find this stuff. And once this pandemic's over, go to the mall, go out, you know, go out to the little league fields and teach this stuff. It's not hard to do. And it's got really good benefits for our patients. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I kind of uh, help run this whole concept called National Stop the Bleed Month. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're, not, we're not teaching anything new. What we're doing is just trying to bring 
more attention to the idea that you can teach people how to stop a bleed and you know here's an opportunity for people who haven't done it before to get a course and during the month of may is when we have so you know may 2021 will be stop a bleed month again and you know during that time we get end up getting great discounts uh from all these uh, fantastic you know uh, hemorrhage control uh uh, businesses, you know, they sell their tourniquets, they sell their hemorrhage control uh, devices and, and such. And so we got a great, a lot of great partnerships uh, and it's a great opportunity to kind of, if you need to stock up on your stuff uh, or kind of direct people towards how to get the, you know, good uh, deals, it's, it's a great time to do it. So if, if you want to wait till May to kind of put everything together, you got about, uh, you got a few months of, to put, to uh, kind of get everything and get your ducks in a row. Yeah, that's great. We're and we're going to definitely link to that. Um, I I really believe in this. I think it's something we should be doing. So, uh, before we go, I want to get into one thing. Uh, you know, I've seen the stickers. Um, I've seen the patches. The whole blood over pasta water. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the Church of Evidence Based Medicine and uh, your role as Saint Fisher? The uh, <laughs> it's uh. What? How you're using, we just had an episode where we, we talked with, um, with an admin from, uh, the admin from Burned Out Memes for EMS Teams, and we talked about, it's, it's really interesting how meme culture is starting to drive education. Um, I noticed that, you know, a lot of people have embraced this. Um, I know on uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, the church puts out a lot of case studies, um, I participated in some of them. I got to admit they are real learning experiences. Like I've, I've answered literally on my iPad as I'm looking something up on my laptop just to make sure that I don't sound like a moron. And um, can you talk a little bit about this? Where did this come from? How did this start? And what's your thoughts on how this is kind of this really kind of almost guerrilla education, like out in the weeds, just, you're bringing this to the masses, bringing this high level stuff. Uh, and you're doing it with, they're doing it with memes. Um, how did this happen? <laughs> uh, it kind of started as a joke. Uh, you know, was, uh, there was a, just a Facebook group that had some small group of people in it. And we would joke around because it seems like, every time someone wants to argue with me on, or tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about or something like that on social media, it always ends up as this big joke. Um, it's like, Jesus, man, did you not Yeah, I, I, even Google? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I've been on a couple of those and they're adorable. <laughs> You know, and look, I, I don't know everything. Uh, I, I try to, I try to talk about the things that I know something that I feel like I know a little bit about. And I, you know, I always try to present an argument in a manner that, Hey, here's the data. Da, 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 da. And it's, and then you end up with somebody who go, well, I once did this. Well, awesome, <laughs> fantastic. An N of one. Great. Uh, and so I ended up being kind of a joke uh, in this group that, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I was always trying to help kind of bring the idea of, of using data and literature and, and published studies to kind of further along education and, and discuss, you know, medicine and social media in that manner. 
and uh, it just kind of became a joke. And I think it was probably what January eighteen or nineteen or something like that. And uh, <laughs> this couple of us got together. I was like, "All right, well, let's do this and go go for it." I said, "Here's pictures of me. Go ahead." see what you can do with it. Uh, but yeah, so what's left of the group, the initial group, there's, there's a few of us. I think there's probably three of us left of the initial five or six. I think there were six total of us. And I think there's three of us left, but we brought on some, you know, a couple of people, uh, you know, uh, John Friedman does a great job. He was part of the original crew. Uh, we brought on, uh, 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 Nick Williams, he does a fantastic. He does all the Pete stuff. Uh, smart, smart kid. Uh, and uh, Tristan's still hanging around. Uh, but we brought on, you know, Austin uh, to kind of uh, do some of our merch stuff. But he always, he's always adding in some some snarkyisms here and there, which is always funny. Uh, but yeah, man, it's 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 the idea that you can use things like memes and use humor and this kind of button just non-traditional approach to education, man. I mean, how is it? My idea is if that's the way people want to learn, okay, well, or if that's people want to interact, then why can't they learn to do the same thing? And it's honestly, it's very, it's, it's far more difficult to put this stuff out than, than anyone thinks. It's very difficult to kind of come up with something that's new and, and, you know, pretty witty and funny and but then also kind of put all, all together in something that is that is relatable and people will, will you know kind of interact with you uh, about. No, absolutely. So, uh, it's, I don't it, make the memes because I'm an idiot. So I have some ideas and I just take it to the boys and they kind of produce this magic. I I I have just literally howled in laughter at some of the stuff uh, that's on. Where can people reach this stuff? You guys are on Facebook, you're on Instagram, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the St. Fisher Church of Evidence-Based Medicine. There you go. The church. Yeah. I run a, uh, fortunately, I, I run a number of different places on social media. Uh, so that's just, that's certainly probably one of my, my most favorite not only because it has my namesake, uh, but it's because it is just fun. One, the boys are so incredibly smart. Uh, the stuff they put out is just uh, off the wall, crazy stuff that I never would have even thought about when I was a paramedic. Uh, but two, they're they're just funny as hell, and, uh, and I just I just love seeing what they come up with. Yeah, I mean the the picture of you, I guess, in your. Uh your combat gear with the, uh, as, as kind of like the Eastern iconic iconography. I, it, it's yeah. just bananas. I mean, there, 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 there's some funny stuff and you know, like this is how our younger generation is learning. I mean, like it or not social media, uh, meme culture. I, I I've got two kids, you know, I've got a teenager and a college kid and you know, this is where they pick their stuff up and this is where it spurs their deep dives into things. It's, it's, it's something that's coming up in education. I think, I think mainstream's going to have to address it at some point. Yeah. I, if, if you've seen any of my presentations that I've given probably over the last year, I put memes in almost every single slide. Uh, it, there's almost no words anymore. It's just memes. And <laughs> I mean, I'm a mid, I, we're about, probably about the same age and I mean, I'm a middle-aged guy and, but man, improvise, adapt, and overcome. I mean, if if you can't 
stay up with how people are going to learn and and if you want if you want to be part of adult education whether you consider memes adult education or not this is how young people or even people older now is how they how they pick up on things it's how they want to interact and even the i just i figure if if we're going to utilize social media for anything good let's just you know if we can use it for education uh you know what everything we do man we, this is our own time we're not trying we're not making any money off this or anything it's just screw it let's let's see what we can teach people great place to end it here um that's uh definitely a fantastic uh, point. Um, Dr. Fisher, um, I really want to appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, you, you said uh, you can be reached at, uh, you know, look them up on uh, Google, uh, look them up on the Church of uh, Evidence-Based Medicine. We're going to link to all this in the show notes. Uh, it has been a great, I've had a great time talking to you and I've learned a ton. So uh, thank you. And uh, we'd love to have you on again in the future for whatever you want to talk about. Well, I appreciate you having me, and uh, hopefully this turns out pretty well, and I'll be happy to come back when it doesn't turn out well. <laughs> well, you never know with us, but uh, that's yeah. uh, that's awesome. So thanks, Doc. We appreciate it. Thanks.